0: Please join me as we pray. Most High God, as we hear the scripture read, give us eyes to see, touch our lives. For it's in your name we do pray, amen. The reading today comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 12, 37 through 42, and chapter 13, verses 17 to 22. The scripture reads as follows. The Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Succoth. About 600,000 men on foot, beside children, accompanied them. A mixed crowd also went up with them, and livestock in great numbers, both flocks and herds. They baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt. It was not leavened, because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait. Nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the Israelites had lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the companies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. That was, for the Lord, a night of vigil to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That same night is a vigil to be kept for the Lord by all Israelites throughout their generations. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near them. For God thought, if the people face war, they may change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people by the roundabout way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went out of the land of Egypt, prepared for battle. And Moses took with him the bones of Joseph, who had required a solemn oath of the Israelites, saying, God will surely take notice of you, and then you must carry my bones with you from here. They set out from Succoth, and camped at Etham, on the edge of the wilderness. The Lord went in front of them, in a pillar of cloud by day, to lead them along the way, and in a pillar of fire by night, to give them light, so that they might travel by day and by night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day, or the pillar of fire by night, left its place in front of the people. This is the word of the Lord. Keeping watch. Aunt Lois, my great Aunt Lois, was the storyteller in our family. And she worked in a great big department store in Atlanta, Georgia, selling women's hats. Although she lived in South Georgia in a little town called Locust Grove, about 30 miles to the south. Occasionally she would stay over and spend the weekend with us and we delighted to have her come because my brother and I knew that we were going to get a story. She would come and she would have dinner in our house and after dinner she'd go out to the front porch and get in her favorite rocking chair, take out a cigarette because she said it kept the mosquitoes away and she would begin to rock back and forth And as the evening grew on, all that you could see of Aunt Lois was the lit tip of that cigarette rocking back and forth. My brother Phil and I sat cross-legged at her feet, ready to drink up every word that she would say, hoping that she would tell us a ghost story. Because the ghost stories that Aunt Lois could take, we were sure, would make the hair stand up on the back of your neck well on this particular night she said that she was going to tell us about Uncle Al now we didn't have an Uncle Al in the family and we really didn't know who she was talking about but we were ready to listen she said that Uncle Al had made his fortune in Chicago And then he retired to this little town in South Georgia of Locust Grove, and there he built a house. After his death, he left the house to Aunt Lois and her sister Elizabeth. She said then this of, of Uncle Al, and this is how she began her story. She said, well, people said that Uncle Al was born with a veil over his eyes. She paused. She rocked back and forth as slowly as she could go, puffed on the cigarette a time or two. It seemed like an eternity for Phil and I as we waited and waited. But then she spoke again and said, because Uncle Al was born with a veil over his eyes, He could see things other people could not see. Almost in unison, Phil and I said, like what? Well, there was no answer. As a matter of fact, we asked a lot of questions that night and we really got very little information at all. It sounded awfully mysterious to me, but I began to wonder, I began to wonder, could a person really see things other people cannot see? Well, later on, I found a story of a man named Viktor Frankel, which I'm sure you've heard of. But Frankel was a person who could see things other people could not see. He was an Austrian psychiatrist, and he was a member of the Jewish faith. And because of his faith, he was put in Hitler's concentration camp. He would lose all his family except one sister. As he was there in the prison camps, he began to observe that prisoners who survived possessed a sense of meaning and purpose in their life. But for those who had no sense of meaning or purpose, their chances were not too great. He tells a story of being out on a winter work detail. And it was a a rough detail in in that they were required to dig a ditch and the earth was frozen and his pick was bouncing off of the earth. Everything was gray, he noticed. The sky seems to come, came down and met the horizon. The snow wasn't quite bright, it was a dull gray. And the mood of all the prisoners, it was gray as well. But at that moment he looked up and he looked to the horizon and he saw something that transformed his life. And this is what Frankel said in his own words. At that moment, a light was lit in a distant farmhouse, which it stood on the horizon. I sensed my spirit piercing through the enveloping gloom. I felt it transcend that hopeless, meaningless world. And from somewhere, I heard a victorious yes in answer to my question of the existence of ultimate purpose. It was et lux tenebris lucid, and the light shineth in the darkness. For Frankel, it was just not a light going on in the farmhouse. He attached meaning to that light, the meaning of hope. That darkness could not overcome the light. You might say that he could see things other people could not see. He was attentive, he was aware, and he was keeping watch. This metaphor sustained Frankel, and even the memory of it would carry him all his days. In the book of Exodus, God is encouraging the Israelites to keep watch, to keep an eye on God in the midst of all the things that are happening. As we looked at the chapter 12 of Exodus, we realized that much has happened in those first 12 chapters. Moses was born, he was raised, he went and had an experience of a burning bush, given a mission by God to come back and to lead the children of Israel out of slavery. And as God commissioned Moses, he gave him the strength to carry this out. You know the story of the 10 plagues and of the last plague being the death of all firstborn. It would be that plague that would finally motivate Pharaoh to let the people go. God directed that Moses would tell the children of Israel to prepare a Passover meal and that they would mark the door of their homes with the blood of a lamb, and that they would stand with a staff in their hands and be ready to walk. After 430 years of slavery, some 600,000 people were now on the march leaving Egypt. But God told them to do something very special, and I have never seen this before, but if you'll look at Exodus 12, 42, God directs not only that the children of Israel keep a night vigil, but that God himself would keep a night vigil. This word vigil comes from the Latin vigilia, which means being attentive, keeping watch, staying alert. Heather Hughes said about a vigil, she said, quote, keeping a spiritual vigil cultivates our sensitivity to what is most significant in life, reminding us that we do not live by bread alone. Being attentive would help the Israelites to see God in their midst as they went through these transitions. We're always in a transition, it seems like. And one of the people that has said a lot about transition is a man by the name of William Bridges. And he basically says there's three stages to transition. First of all, there's the leaving stage, saying goodbye to the life that you once had, letting it go, ending a chapter. The second stage is called going midair. The best way to think about this is to think about going to the circus and watching a trapeze artist move from bar to bar. As you see this trapeze artist swing, there comes a moment in time where she lets go of the bar. She goes midair, waiting for the next bar to come. It's probably the most anxious part of this stage, of hanging out there, knowing that there's no net below. The last stage, according to Bridges, is beginning again. That's starting over, finding your way, making a home, building a life. The Israelites were going through these stages of transition as they found their way. As we reflect on this passage from Exodus, we wonder what is it that we might glean from it? What is God saying to us? Well, Frederick Buechner, one of my favorite fellows, has something to say that might help us in our reflection of this passage. He says, quote, we really can't hear what the stories of the Bible are saying until we hear them as stories about ourselves. This story is our story. You see, Exodus took place in the darkness, and that's where we are now. We're in the darkness. We're in the darkness of a global health crisis. Exodus was about fear, fear of the unknown. This fear we know It it goes to bed with us at night. It's there when we wake up, and it comes to visit several times a day when we hear the news. Exodus was an enormous upheaval for these lives of the Israelites. Everything was changing. Well, that's what's happening in our world. We grieve the life that we once had. We have to let go of so many things, it seems like, And we know the experience of going midair because we're there, suspended in time, just waiting. When will life begin again? It seems like everything is so uncertain. But in the midst of this Exodus story, God challenges us to keep watch. So how? How do we see God in our midst? How do we wait out this darkness? Well, here's the good example from three teenagers. It seems that on New Year's Eve of 1975, Randy Knapp, 18, Matt Meacham, 16, and Gary Snyder, 16, decided to climb Mount Hood. Now, they were well-experienced in mountain climbing. But they climbed for three days to get there and were not quite at the top. But when they reached the 7,600 mark, weather came in. It was unexpected. It closed in with heavy snow. In fact, it was quite out conditions. Visibility was only 30 feet and the wind was 40 miles an hour. They tried to put up their tent for protection but it just kept collapsing under the weight of the mounting snow. So they dug a snow cave. They got back in the snow cave, and that's where they stayed. On day 10, they ran out of food. The last six days, they survived by just simply sharing teaspoons full of jello pudding and pancake mix. On the 16th day, they were rescued. All had lost weight. A few of them had minor frostbite. But otherwise, they were in good condition. So the question is, how did they survive? How did they wait out the darkness? They did the basics well. They found shelter, they dug a snow cave, they huddled together, they rationed their food, and they read the Bible. You got it. Randy had carried a Bible up to the top of Mount Hood, and he credits their faith as helping them survive. They particularly liked the Psalms. Randy said, quote, to this day, I can remember verses that were important to us. We read in the Psalms over and over how David would get in jams And He would ask God to save him and he would that gave us a tremendous amount of hope Well, this is how they survived it They did the basics well from the beginning of time Christians have had to learn how to wait out the darkness and watch for God over and over and over We will do what Christians have always done. We will do the basics well. We will pray. We will pray for our family, our church, our friends, our healthcare professionals, scientists, and all who wear the mantle of leadership both here and abroad. And we will pray for everyone who is at a place of risk serving others. We have much to pray. We will worship. We will worship deeply, we will sing our hymns, and we will find a way to share our tithes and offerings to support the work of God's kingdom. We will read our Bible and study the great stories of faith, remembering that faith is how the saints made it throughout all the ages of adversity. We will check. We will check on each other, Breathing hope into the lives of other people. And if we need help, we'll call somebody and let them know. Remember that going for help is a sign of strength. And we will live in the memory of God's sacraments. While they are suspended for a moment, let us sharpen our seeing. So that every time we see water, we will think of our baptism and we will hear you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit in baptism and marked as Christ's own forever and every time we see bread we will think of Holy Communion take eat this is my body given for you we will remember that the cross placed upon our foreheads on Ash Wednesday is still there You've been named and claimed by the Most High and you will not slip through God's fingers. And we will keep watch, be attentive and awake to how God comes to us every day in countless ways. Uncle Al. Uncle Al could see things other people could not see. May it be so with us, amen.